Welcome to the third episode of Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. So far, we've had Zarathustra coming down the mountain, and he's had a discussion with a priest in a forest, which has then led to a nice tension between philosophy and religion. And the whole purpose of Zarathustra coming down the mountain is to give humanity a gift, and that gift is the Superman. Last episode, we dealt with Zarathustra at the marketplace having a discussion about the Superman. And it was a section that was quite critical upon metaphysics and the ways in which philosophies try to create structures and models upon which to dictate our knowledge and our view of the world. And the harm that that's created. So from critical section 3 to section 4. That's going to discuss exactly what Zarathustra loves about mankind and humanity. So let's get cracking. Section 4. Zarathustra looked at the people and marveled. And then he spoke thus. Man is a rope. Fastened between animal and superman, a rope over an abyss, a dangerous going across, a dangerous wayfaring, a dangerous looking back, a dangerous shuddering and staying still. What is great in man is that he is a bridge and not a goal. What can be loved in man is that he is a going across and a down-going. I love those who do not know how to live, except their lives be a down-going, for they are those who are going across. So initially, we have this discussion on which man is the tightrope walker, suspended between animal and superman. And what Nietzsche's getting at here is the, the point that Man is suspended between desire and trying to overcome our bodily desires and trying to be higher than our animality and instinctual drives. And in trying to overcome that, we have a goal or we create some concept that's going to be higher than that animality. So we have the Superman at the other end of that. And what's interesting is that the Superman is at the one end, and humanity is in the middle of that, not quite at the goal of the Superman. But that's the point, of course, is that we're never to want to attain the goal of the Superman. It's always just going to be at the other end, always at the other end of that tunnel, forever out of our reach. But we're always trying to aspire towards it, always trying to at least put our fingers out to try and grasp it, kind of like a very famous Michelangelo painting in which we have precisely, you know, the, the two fingertips trying to touch each other between man and God. And this sense of going across is also a going down. It's a really deep point that man is a bridge and not a goal. 
Because Nietzsche's point is different from that of Aristotle's, in which goals are very healthy and productive for us. The posh philosophical concept about goals and a goal-orientated approach is called teleology. Aristotle's view is that once we have a goal, we have something to aspire towards. And if we have something to aspire towards, we can attain it and hope to overcome it. And then we set ourselves a new goal that we then can aspire towards and overcome it. And that continual sense of setting yourself and overcoming your own goals leading towards higher and higher forms of self-achievement. For example, it's very easy to have an athletic example here in which you just simply do some running and you try to beat your goal and how exactly fast you can run 100 meters and you do a little better each time and then progressively over time you hopefully beat your record and then you set a new record and then that becomes the bar and so therefore you become just an overall better runner. And Nietzsche's point is that we're the bridge and not the goal. So what he means by that is we are adventurers. We are apprentices. And through our wanting to learn and discover various different things about the world, it's that we then gain more knowledge about it and love it. That is to say, the important point is not the goal, but rather the effort in achieving the goal is the important thing. And a good example of this comes later in contemporary philosophy with Albert Camus' myth of Sisyphus. So the myth of Sisyphus is that he's punished by the gods to forever push this big boulder up a hill continually for all eternity. And whenever you push it up the hill, it rolls back down again. And Camus' point is like that of Nietzsche's. The importance is not in the whole achievement of the goal, but rather in the actual pushing the boulder up the hill every single time. Because it's by pushing the boulder up the hill that ultimately Sisyphus gives meaning to his punishment and gives meaning to his life. It's a great way in which you can relate it to everyday life. Where you have a nine to five job and you think, oh my God, every day I've got to get up and do this nine to five job day after day after day. But Nietzsche and Camus' point is that it's not precisely a hellish existence where the same things happen in every single day. But rather it's the person themselves that's given meaning and purpose to their life and that they're doing in the first place. Continuing on. I love the great despisers, for they are the great venerators and arrows of longing for the other bank. I love those who do not first seek beyond the stars for reasons to go down and to be sacrifices, but who sacrifice themselves to the earth, that the earth may one day belong to the Superman. I love him who lives for knowledge and who wants knowledge that one day the Superman may live, and thus he wills his own downfall. I love him who works and invents, that he may build a house for the Superman, and prepare earth, animals, and plants for him. 
for thus he wills his own downfall. I love him who loves his virtue, for virtue is will to downfall and an arrow of longing. I love him who keeps back no drop of spirit for himself, but wants to be the spirit of his virtue entirely. Thus he steps as a spirit over the bridge. I love him who makes a prayer deliction and a fate of his virtue. Thus, for his virtue's sake, he will live or not live. I love him who does not want too many virtues. One virtue is more virtue than two because it is more of a knot for fate to cling to. I love him whose soul is lavish, who neither wants nor returns thanks, for he always gives and will not perish himself. I love him who is ashamed when the dice fall in his favour, and who then asks, Am I then a cheat? For he wants to perish. I love him who throws golden words in advance of his deeds, and always performs more than he promised, for he wills his own downfall. I love him who justifies the men of the future and redeems the men of the past, for he wants to perish by the men of the present. I love him who chastises his God because he loves his God, for he must perish by the anger of his God. I love him whose soul is deep, even its ability to be wounded, and whom even a little thing can destroy. Thus he is glad to go over the bridge. I love him whose soul is over full, and so forgets himself, and all things are in him. Thus all things become his downfall. I love him who is of a free spirit and a free heart. Thus his head is only the bowels of his heart, but his heart drives him to his downfall. So Nietzsche is here discussing three overall things. First, those people that build things and erect things so that the Superman may then come. And then he discusses the moral character of someone and the relation to being a virtuous person. And then we have the relation into fate and fortune. So on a deeper level, we have this continual repetition of the specific words of love and a statement of I love, I love, I love. And we also have the repetition of the words downfall and perish. So what's happening in the midst of all this discussion that's going on is that Nietzsche is saying here that love is something that enables us to construct and build knowledge, build foundations for ourselves. And it falls back into the initial points in the section where our knowledge and love and want to learn and discover ultimately helps us learn more about the world. So love is a very positive thing. It constructs. And this leads to different structures, different methodologies, 
and different outlooks and approaches that we can take to viewing the world. For example, within the sciences, you can have a biological approach, chemical approach, one that's based on physics. And it's through our love that an opposing view comes out and challenges that of an established piece of knowledge. And it's almost as a reader or listener of a talk. You become enamored with precisely the passion that the person has. And the way in which knowledge develops is because we have this love affair with knowledge in which we fall in and out of love with it. That is to say, we fall in and out of love with specific people. So at one point, we might privilege a certain person's view. We're very enamored with them. We're very much in love with everything they've got to say. And then another person comes along and precisely then fall in love with them. So it's a very deep point in the midst of all this that you're only so good for what you say or that you're only the only held to have views that are valuable for humanity in so much you are loved by people and adored by them. So knowledge becomes a very fragile thing. It's not something that's stable or eternal or everlasting because people will always find something else to go and then love. You're only a flash in the pan, ultimately, is what Nietzsche's saying here. So rounding off the section, I love all those who are like heavy drops falling singly from the dark cloud that hangs over mankind. They prophesy the coming of the lightning, and as prophets they perish. Behold, I am a prophet of the lightning and a heavy drop from the cloud, but this lightning is called Superman. At the end we have the sense of one day the Superman may live, and that I'm the prophet of the Superman, and it goes back into the idea of having a concept or idea that's good for humanity, but it's only so good is that humanity loves that as an idea. Eventually it's going to be assumed, of course, that we may fall in love with that idea. And for the Superman, and what Zarathustra is also given to the world as a gift, is at the same time saying that the Superman will be overcome as an idea at some point. And we get this right, right at the end of the book, where Zarathustra says, The line has come, my children are near, Zarathustra has become ripe, my hour has come. And the line there represents the way in which it has that hunger and thirst for knowledge again. The children represent the ways in which new concepts and new ways of thinking is going to emerge. So Zarathustra, right at the end of the book, says, that's me done, that's my ideas finished now. An interesting point as well here is that Nietzsche repeats the words, I love him, I love him, when he repeats the word I love. And what's to be noted here is there is quite an interesting little criticism could be made from a feminist perspective of what about the female in this situation? What about the woman? Because all what Zarathustra is saying is that he loves men. Where is the role of the female in all this? Section 5. 
When Zarathustra had spoken these words, he looked again at the people and fell silent. There they stand, he said to his heart. There they laugh. They do not understand me. I am not the mouth for these ears. Must one first shatter their ears to teach them to hear with their eyes? Must one rumble like drums and lantern preachers? Or do they believe only those who stammer? They have something of which they are proud. What is it called that makes them proud? They call it culture. It distinguishes them from the goat herds. Therefore, they dislike hearing the word contempt spoken of them. So I shall speak to their pride. So I shall speak to them of the most contemptible man. And that is the ultimate man. So Nietzsche's here saying he's not the mouth for these ears. And what is touched upon here is the conflict between Nietzsche and his own time period and being very aware that he doesn't really have any popularity for what he has to say but that eventually in the future people will actually understand his own philosophy there's an irony in that Nietzsche is of course one of the most misquoted and misunderstood philosophers that there is and there's that question have we actually correctly understood Nietzsche at all and also we have to delve deeper into Nietzsche's overall philosophical project. During the German Romantic period, so roughly the late 18th and into the 19th century, there's a move in philosophy towards the mind. And the big philosopher during this period is Hegel, H-E-G-E-L. And his big book is called The Phenomenology of Spirit. The word spirit can be translated into either that of spirit or mind because it comes from the German word Geist. And interestingly enough, in a little side note, contemporary philosopher Slavoj Zizek says that Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit is the only philosophy book that you actually need to ever read if you only had to choose just one in a desert island situation. And what ultimately is problematical about this focus on the mind is that move towards ideality and the ideal from the world and our experience. So an example of this we can see in Hegel's lectures on aesthetics, in which we have, at the end of the book, he gives us a nice structure for how we should view art. The best kind of art Hegel argues, is that of sculpture, because sculpture is the only way in which we can properly manifest our idea that we have in our mind. And for Hegel, all other forms of art, there's some problem in trying to express your idea down. For painting, you're of course limited by what colors you have to use, and you never quite manage to get the exact colors and expression that you would like. And Nietzsche's point is that with all this focus on the mind, there's that move towards a focus on the beautiful and away from our body and away from the world. Another good philosopher 
that also starts to problematize this relationship between the ideal and the world, or the ideality and actuality, is Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. In a nice wee book that shows the problems with this ideality is Kierkegaard's repetition, in which you have a young man who's very much in love with a woman, and then an old man trying to give him advice. And you could see exactly what's going on there as well. When somebody becomes so infatuated with another person, you get caught up in precisely your own infatuation, and you don't see all the little problems that might be there. So Nietzsche, at the start of this section, has been incredibly critical of his own time period. People are proud of things, call it culture, You'd rather have your head stuck in the clouds, basically, admiring all these beautiful things, beautiful artwork, and so forth. And what does it ultimately do? Try to distinguish you for something that's better than our own animality. And they don't like the word contempt. They don't like anything that's critical about it. There's almost a distaste there. If anybody tries to come along and criticize things they'd all just like to be all left in this lovely idyllic picturesque setting so here Nietzsche's then going to go more into this concept of the ultimate man and thus spoke Zarathustra to the people it is time for man to fix his goal it is time for man to plant the seed of his highest hope his soil is still rich enough for it but the soil will one day be poor and weak. No longer will a high tree be able to grow from it. Alas, the time is coming when man will no more shoot the arrow of his longing out over mankind, and the string of his bow will have forgotten how to twang. I tell you, one must have chaos in one to give birth to a dancing star. I tell you, you still have chaos in you. Alas, the time is coming when man will give birth to no more stars. Alas, the time of the most contemptible man is coming, the man who can no longer despise himself. Behold, I show you the ultimate man. So here we have one of the most quoted Nietzsche phrases. One must have chaos in one to give birth to a dancing star. Is ultimately saying that Greatness is created through conflict and engagement with problems. That is to say that problems are very much a worldly thing. Problems arise through being critical and creating a opposition to a viewpoint or a way of doing things. And the resolution of those problems allows us to get towards the answer, the star. And I'm going to use a, an example from the history of philosophy here as well in which we have got the emergence of philosophical concepts as those great stars that emerge through chaos. So in Plato, Plato's big concept is idea with a big I. And how do we reach this concept? It's an answer to the problem of everyone running around in ancient Greece saying that they're the best in a given field for something. And so all these people that would run around saying that they're the best would charge you a small fee, of course, to go listen to them. 
So in Plato, we have a problem of seeking just value for money here. Who do I want to spend my small amount of coins on to go listen to? Because I want to go make sure that ultimately I'm getting my money's worth out of the situation. And so the idea comes out in Plato as an answer to that problem, all that chaos. Everybody running around saying that they're the best. Because the idea is going to be the thing in which it acts as a a measuring stick and a standard upon which we can say what fits within a thing or not. So we can have like the idea of a dog being set up and all the qualities about what makes a dog. And you can say this is what the idea of a dog is, what makes it the dog in the first place, and also why we can't call a cat a dog or a rabbit a dog and so forth. And so for Nietzsche here, what's really worrying to him is that we're going to have this loss of critical reflection, loss of skepticism, and ultimately we're just going to become complacent and stuck within this idyllic state. The point in which he says there, you can, man will no longer despise himself. That's the point in which you're no longer critical of yourself, critical of your own views, critical about the way you think about things. And if you lose all that, ultimately it happen is we just become accepting of this very idyllic state about things. So that's exactly how the ultimate man is going to view the world and this next little bit that's going to round it off. The earth has become small. What is love? What is creation? What is longing? What is a star? Thus asks the ultimate man and blinks. The earth has become small, and upon it hops the ultimate man, who makes everything small. His race is as inexterminable as the flea. The ultimate man lives longest. We have discovered happiness, say the ultimate men, and blink. They have left the places where living was hard, for one needs warmth. One still loves one's neighbor and rubs oneself against him. For one needs warmth. Sickness and mistrust count as sins with them. One should go about warily. He is a fool who still stumbles over stones or over men. A little poison now and then that produces pleasant dreams and a lot of poison that lasts for pleasant death. They still work. For work is entertainment, but they take care the entertainment does not exhaust them. Nobody grows rich or poor anymore. Both are too much of a burden. Who wants to rule? Who wants to obey? Both are too much of a burden. No herdsman and one herd. Everyone wants the same thing. Everyone is the same. Whoever thinks otherwise goes voluntarily into the madhouse. Formerly, all the world was mad, say the most acute of them, and blink. They are clever and know everything that has ever happened, so there is no end to their mockery. They still quarrel, but they soon make up. Otherwise, indigestion would result. They have their little pleasure for the day and their little pleasure for the night, but they respect health. We have discovered happiness, say the ultimate men, and blink. What a horrifying wee section. So what's left when we get rid of all that critical reflection, skepticism, is humanity is... This robotic species, one who wants pleasure, 
never to be exhausted, never to have hard work or hard thinking about things. That's too much. I think one of the most terrifying lines out of this section is the no herdsman, one herd. Everyone wants the same thing. Everyone is the same. Whoever thinks otherwise goes voluntarily into the madhouse. So it's precisely that point of to think differently is to think or to have an opposing view to that of a norm of society is ultimately to be mad. Oh, isn't it a dangerous thing to think otherwise than what the norm of society says? And we have got great literature examples in which you can have exactly this kind of situation where we have a norm enforced upon everyone that has to think a certain way and has to live a certain way. And that's in George Orwell's 1984, where you have Big Brother looking down upon the people, making sure that everybody adheres to the, the norm. Or another example is in Alan Moore's V for Vendetta, in which we also have got a fantastic film where it's in a totalitarian state of Britain. It's again in the situation of watching the people and making sure they adhere to exactly what the government tells them to do. What I love is the repetition, say the ultimate men and blink. It's like the way in which they're unfeeling, uncaring, unemotional. And they've lost all their passion. So what we're left with is just this robotic ultimate man. And here ended Zarathustra's first discourse, which is also called the prologue. For at this point, the shouting and the mirth of the crowd interrupted him. Give us this ultimate man, O Zarathustra. So they cried, make us into this ultimate man. You can have the superman. And all the people laughed and shouted. But Zarathustra grew sad and said to his heart, They do not understand me. I am not the mouse for these ears. Perhaps I lived too long in the mountains, listened too much to the trees and the streams. Now I speak to them as to goat herds. Unmoved is my soul and bright as the mountains in the morning. But they think me cold and a mocker with fearful jokes. And now... They look at me and laugh, and laughing, they still hate me. There is ice in their laughter. And here, at the end of section five, we have Nietzsche being critical of the general populace in that they don't want the Superman. They don't ultimately want something that will show criticism of their own views, enable them to reevaluate how they think. They just want the ultimate man. They want something that's going to lead towards their robotic, idyllic existence for things. People in general just want to be happy. They don't want to rock the boat at all. It's precisely that line out of Shaun of the Dead. Everybody just wants to have a nice cup of tea. Just wait for the whole thing to just blow over. Whilst Nietzsche's like, no, precisely if we got stuck in there as Sean ultimately does in the movie as well, then all the positivity happens, all the creativity, all the solutions to problems, all the passion. And once we have all that, we have got diversity and chaos. And that's precisely the point, isn't all this diversity and difference of opinions not much better for us as a species and for our thoughts, rather than for everybody to have this complacency 
want to think exactly the same as each other. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion of sections four and five of the prologue. Feel free to drop me a wee email at dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com or you could always give me a wee tweet and my Twitter handle is I am a rubber man. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you'll join us next time.